Amen, amen. Thank you, our worship team, for uh, that taste of heaven and reminding us it's his breath in our lungs that lets us praise. And uh, it's just so good to see you all. I've been away a couple weeks. We got our weekend at the beach, and uh, we got to know how to rest North Carolina. It's just such a delight. And I hope that you all have opportunity to do what refreshes you over this summer. That's kind of our special little place in the new heavens and earth. I want to be mayor over that island. Uh, that's all I ask. But, uh, but I hope you're having the opportunity to do that. And uh, I do miss you when I'm not here. I watch the live stream, and our guys do such an amazing job, don't they, if you've, if you've taken part in that. But yeah, compare that to the difference between you know, a lightning bug and lightning. Um, the, being here is so much better, is what I'm saying. Being here is that unique thing. But when you can't, uh, what a great thing uh, in terms of the live stream. And uh, you should have gotten by email an announcement that makes nobody happy, and that is uh, the announcement about our associate pastor, John Marcotte, and his uh, leading in God's providence in a number of ways to draw his 11-year ministry here to a close. If you, if you didn't get that, check your spam folder, make sure you're on our list, uh, or you can pick up a copy of that today. But John has been, for the past 11 years, a colleague, a faithful and effective pastor, and a friend, and he's been one who has been part of, in our growing, constantly changing church, who's been not only a champion of our vision, but also part of uh, the contributive, cumulative, collaborative architect uh, of making our vision sing. He's made us more aware of being an outpost of grace. Uh, he's made us more diverse. We've welcomed him as a Mets fan and loved him well um, in the midst of that, but uh, he's made really a great contribution. It's hard to imagine the growth and development of our church in the way God has blessed it uh, without his partnership. And yet God has led him to uh, take a different path and to be moving forward with his family. And one of the things that God calls us to do in this time is really uh, to convey our great appreciation, both to God, uh, but also it's important directly to John. And so uh, on the 28th and 29th, the Saturday and Sunday, the, the end of this month, we're going to be holding receptions for John and for his family. And one of the things I want to encourage you to do uh, if you've personally been impacted or even in the indirect ways that all of us have been impacted by John's ministry, we're putting together an encouragement box and we'd like to fill that chock full. We'd like to give John a lot of reading material uh, and a lot of encouragement material uh, as he makes that transition. So I encourage you, if you can't be part of those receptions, you can get those things to us. Uh, and we'd just like to be over the top uh, if that's possible in terms of affirmation, encouragement, and uh, recognizing that God has given us a good gift in John, and we know God's got continued and great things for him. Um, I also, just in change of topic, want to say I know you've been praying about the building expansion, and last week we reached a major hurdle in getting some key important papers lined up and approvals, and tomorrow is our, our pre-construction meeting. That's a huge step to be able to call it that. Um, so we think you'll be seeing some dirt move uh, bef before we get through the next month here, and uh, that's really exciting. So keep praying, pray for that meeting, uh, and pray for what's ahead. And uh, with that, let me just, uh, again, bow us together in prayer. Um, Lord God, we come to you. We thank you that you are the God in whose life uh, our lives are held. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of John, Marcotte, and his family. And we pray that your rich benediction in every way upon he, upon Julie, upon Caleb and Eden, uh, we would just acknowledge before you, God, you have been so good to us and that the things that John has imparted from you are strong in our church and that they would continue to be fed and nurtured and built up and maintained. And we uh, thank you, Lord, for this season of expansion. What a blessing to be part of your work here 
and to see it expand and grow. And we pray that you would prosper every aspect of this, that that meeting tomorrow uh, would be the full and final gateway um, to the construction process and that you would be over every aspect, Lord, every piece of, of steel and, and wood and drywall and wiring and all of the things that are brought and executed here, that it would be done under your hand with your guidance overruling and superintending that process. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one way you can tell that uh, I assign the topics and I'm over the teaching ministry is that Rob Chivico preaches on fasting. I preach on feasting. Um, and arguably, I just want to say feasting is more important than fasting. It gets a lot more press in the Bible. And also, in heaven, there is no fasting. So fasting is a, is a temporary but important thing. And also, you can fast and not get the gospel. The Pharisees fasted twice a week, and they really didn't get the gospel. They were Jesus' opponents. Uh, but they didn't know anything about, I believe, what feasting and celebrating really conveys. And, and we're going to look, I'm going to give you a helicopter tour. Um, I don't know, how high does a helicopter fly? 10,000 feet? Is that sort of like that? It's not 36,000 feet, but I'm going to give you a helicopter tour of the Bible about feasting. And feasting is celebrating, it's God taking the raw material, and you might say the the mundane and ordinary material of his creation that he gives to us. And it's the grace and gift of taking those things that are like shafts of light from the sun, the, the shafts of pleasure from God, and not simply enjoying them in themselves, but tracing them all the way back to the Father of lights from whom comes every good and perfect gift. That's what um, feasting really takes the ordinary thing of food. And we all have a broken relationship with food. In fact, our relationship is broken. You can know it this morning when you say, well, feasting, I don't need any sermon on feasting. I'm good, right? <laughs> uh, but there may be some of us, and I think it's true probably for a lot of us at different times, that we actually have a problem with feasting. If you've ever been invited to this feast and you've been wanting to continue to count calories, you've got a broken relationship. <laughs> feasting is a time where you don't count the calories. You're, you're enjoying, you're entering into pure and sublime enjoyment. And the amazing thing, God repairs our relationship with food, and our relationship with food was broken in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> when you think about it, that a relationship with food is how we got into this whole mess when Adam and Eve rebelled and took the, the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that probationary tree that they were forbidden from taking, and, and it catapulted us all into a reality where everything is tinged with something that's not supposed to be there. Uh, that Though creation is filled with all these shafts of light, but everything is fallen. And everything is claimed by God to be redeemed, but it's fallen. And the amazing thing is that God takes food, which, which catapulted us into the fall, and it becomes our gateway into the enjoyment of him. When you think about it, on, on Emmaus Road, uh, after the resurrection, Jesus took a seven-mile walk with the disciples, and they were uh, treated to the greatest sermon, perhaps, ever from the Old Testament, Jesus took the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and he showed them that it was all about him. And it, they said, our hearts were burning within us, but they still didn't recognize him. And do you know, when, it, when was it in Luke 24 that they were able to recognize that it was Jesus speaking to them? It was when Jesus took the bread and broke it, and he was recognized and made known. Um, how great is our God that he takes food, the instrument of our downfall, and makes it the passageway to restored relationship with him? 
Uh, and so I want to look again at this helicopter tour of the Bible. We're not going to go uh, deep into any one passage, but by the cumulative effect of this, I want you to go deep into what it means in God's sight to feast. And the first place is in Leviticus 23. Um, in this place, God commands Moses, and he says, Speak to the people of Israel, say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord. And the chapter lists seven feasts. And he says, you shall proclaim them as holy convocations. You cannot feast alone. This is not someone binge eating a half gallon of ice cream on their couch watching Netflix in a fit of depression. <laughs> this is a holy convocation. It is abundance with a convocation of us drawn together. And, and he appoints seven feasts, seven feasts, that were to be a repeated way of drawing God's people together. And chronologically, they were everything from the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, which we get our Feast of Pentecost, Pente celebration of the Holy Spirit there, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths, and they celebrated every new moon with a feast. And God was commanding these feasts to be communal and to also be commemorative. Every feast was communal, bringing God's people together, and every feast was to commemorate some great redemptive act that God accomplished. And, and what this tells us, in, and really this is the, the main thrust and the point of this, is that celebration is the way of our God. Celebration is the way of Christ. And, and he wants us to be a people who know, who have this zest for life, but who find the pleasures of life connect us with the God who is the author of those pleasures. And, and here's what this reality communicates to us. Every single one of us, you and I, we're nurtured not simply as um, ephemeral spirits, but we are body, soul, and spirit. And when we are spiritually down, you can't just um, dissect our spirit from our body and somehow encourage our spirit. With the, the body and the spirit, they... They coalesce together, they, they, and, and one is impacted, and the other is also impacted. And God knew this. He designed us this way as his image bearers. And so when he wants to encourage us, the tactile, the enjoyment of food is part of that process. And the infusion of joy into our life is something God set up with these feasts. And food is more than fuel for our bodies to keep going, but it actually is a spiritual means of encouragement. Amen. Yeah, getting some of you ready for applying this sermon a little later today, I'm sure. And so I want, to, I want to show you next an interesting text in Deuteronomy 12. This is a text about the sacrifices and sacrifices that were bought with their tithes and, their, and were part of their tithes and offerings. And he says, when you bring your freewill offerings, and this was sometimes the firstborn of their herds and their flocks, he says, there you shall eat it before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. These first fruits were to be eaten and rejoiced. And I, I want you to understand what this text means about the Old Testament sacrifice and worship. So they would, they would bring their, their produce from the field and the garden. They would bring their sacrifices and the animals. And it wasn't just offered up in one blaze of smoke and reduced to ashes. But as they would do this, um, the smell of grilled meat would waft through, and it wasn't just consumed by the priest, but actually, actually serious and best portions of this 
were to be brought before the people, and, and they were to enjoy it together. They were to eat and rejoice. I, I, I love that imagery. You know, and, and, and so, uh, you know, how many of us, if we're working in our yard, we smell what the neighbor's grilling, and we think, ah, that's wonderful. The, the aromas and the joy and the, the family joining together. And this speaks to something that God knows. There, there have been times where I think all of us have experienced where spiritually depleted. We need an injection of the encouragement of the scriptures, but we don't feel an appetite for that. We, we need prayer, but our hearts are disinclined. And what God mysteriously uses is a meal together with someone where there's a heart-to-heart connection and spirituality happens. And, and so it shows us that we're not just nurtured in the spirit, but that our bodies play this role. Um, Jesus did not say that we are not ever nurtured by bread. He says we, are not, we do not live by bread alone and by the word of God. But, but bread is, is not just fuel to keep us going. In other words, if you've, I, I saw a press release of these hardworking tech people in California, and they were, they were boasting that they had devised some form of protein intake that they could just take, and they could avoid ever eating. Uh, and, and there's something really... Um, Ultimately, and I'm not exaggerating, there's something demonic about that. In 1 Timothy 4, it says that those who deny um, foods and, and the pleasures of this life and, and marriage and, and sexual connection within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, that he says they teach doctrines of demons. And then he says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6 and 7, he says, for everything created by God is good if it is received with thanksgiving and sanctified by the word of God. And and so the goodness of creation and our connection to it, and again, our connection is, is broken, and that's one of the ways that both fasting and feasting play a role. Um, fasting is the giving up of food, a meal, or, uh, or maybe it's even just a certain types of food, like a Daniel fast, giving up uh, meat for a season or whatever, to use that time of preparation to seek God. And that breaks the stranglehold, the idolatry of food. Uh, but also the ability to feast would break this kind of sense of repression or restrictiveness. And God knows our souls are nurtured to this. And so he provided this ready round of, of seven feasts with the Old Testament calendar and every new moon to be a time of reminding and nurturing and strengthening us in that. What a, what a delightful command. And all these feasts ultimately point to the Lord's Supper, uh, which is really, you could say, the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate next week, is really simply the rehearsal dinner for the wedding supper of the Lamb. The, the Lord's Supper is that rehearsal dinner where God gathers his family together, communally together, but also to commemorate the great victory of Christ through his cross and resurrection. And this is seen even in the Old Testament. The next passage I want to point you to is um, Isaiah 25. And I want you to see in this text, it speaks of the, of the great banquet that will end as well as begin all history and it's going to be on a mountain. I want you to note the description here in verse 6. It says, I'm going to make a host. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Note how the Bible emphasizes that in the Old Testament. The embrace of God is we're a global church. And it says it will be a feast of rich food. No counting calories that day. 
a feast of well-aged wine. I don't know anything about wine. It's not my thing, really. But it's like this, God's saying, I'm bringing out the good stuff. Well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow. In other words, the best cuts of meat. The very best possible cuts of meat. And again, aged wine, (laughs) well-refined. This is not just enough food to sustain us. This is not the idea of, uh, of... the efficiency of, hey, I could just take a vitamin and, and be sustained. This is God wanting us to be delighted. Uh, and he says, this is the meal that will show that God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. Ultimately pointing to Mount Moriah and the Mount of Calvary are the place where Abraham was given the one who provided the sacrifice, the ram that took the place of his son, Isaac, and Jesus is the perfect Isaac offered up on that mountain so that death is overcome. And it describes death as a veil that's spread over the nations, and it says he's going to swallow up death forever. Uh, And so this picture in the Old Testament points us to this, that God is about our celebration, about about our being Uh, rejoined in the drama of creation, creation infused with God's goodness. Yes, now it's fallen, but it still points us back to the God who infused it with his goodness and is going to break all of the stranglehold of sin over it. And the next place I want to turn you is to the New Testament, and it is to the first miracle of Jesus. Uh, It's the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding feast. And John emphasizes in verse 11, you can see the last sentence, this is the first of his signs. Now, when you think about the first, the first miracle, so Jesus is 30 now. He's, he's, he's waited all those years to enact the miracle, and he's going to do the, the signature opening miracle. You know, if, uh, and if it were us, we might choose something different than being at a wedding feast because it seems like a trivial crisis compared to other things. I would think, Jesus, hey, your first miracle should be somebody whose child is dying, or maybe even a child who just died and raised them to life. Or, hey, Jesus, how about leprosy? How about something that is a wasting, incurable disease? And yet, Jesus says, those are not the telltale sign of his kingdom. That those things, though they seem like bigger deals, they don't get at the heart of what Jesus came to do. Jesus is saying that he is essentially the Lord of the feast. And, and I love this, that Jesus stands in the midst of that feast, and when he's brought into that social crisis, I mean, you think, is this of messianic proportion? The, the party's been a good party for two days. It's just going to have to end a little earlier. Uh, and he says, it's not my time. It's not my time. Really, always in John, pointing to, the, to Jesus' time of the cross, and he And he is persuaded finally because it says he manifested his glory, the glory of the one who ushers us into the feast of God. And and in the Gospels, you find Jesus constantly at places of banquets and feasts and using that in his parables. Um, There's a wonderful book by Tim Chester um, that some of us I know have read in studies that talks about eating with Jesus, dining with Jesus. And, and, and the meals that Jesus had with people. Um, he makes the remark, and it's really true, especially when you read the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is either um, at a feast, or he's coming out of a feast, or he's getting ready to go into a feast in the Gospels. And, and it seems like this is his strategy. In fact, in Luke 19, where he says the Son of Man comes to seek and save the lost, he also says the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. He's always eating and drinking. 
Kind of feels like my vacation. Kind of feels like right now in our house with all five of our kids are at home for this season for the most part. Uh, and, and so my wife, she's a great cook. She loves to especially cook when all the kids are there, right? So, so there's always this. I mean, on our vacation near the ocean, you know that old rule about don't swim within an hour of eating? Well, if that's true, I should never swim, ever, ever. Um, and that's so often true in life. And, and you look at the Gospels and you can say, well, okay, that's why Jesus walked on water. He was always eating and it wasn't right for him to swim, so he walked on water. And, and he just is always in, in the enjoyment of this. And I know, how did he get by with it without needing to buy, you know, a stretchy robe or something uh, all the time? But it's because he was always walking. I mean, in a, in a nation about the size of New Jersey, he covered it on foot. Imagine covering the state of New Jersey on foot and, and moving about all, all around. So it's, you know, one writer said, if you, um, you know, if you eat like Jesus but don't walk like Jesus, you will look like Buddha. And that's <laughs> not the spirituality that we are talking about. But the joy of Jesus, and, and this is why Jesus could say to his disciples, I want the joy that's in me to be like, to be in you. Um, that that Jesus, Jesus' methodology, again, was around a table with people, drawing them into fellowship. We sometimes wrongly say like, hey, I don't have time to, for relationships. But we all eat. If we're breathing, if we're alive, if we're healthy, we all eat. And, and those are, are ways, I mean, ministry is as close as being able to eat with someone and, and to share fellowship during that time. And that was the method of Jesus. Sometimes people come to our church and say, I want to break into ministry. Maybe even I did this in my last church, or this is what I'm good at. I want to do this. And I say, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And if I were to be honest, one, one need that I have seen constantly that has never been met in our church and I don't know if it ever will be met. It's, it's just there are people who would be so blessed if you would take them out to breakfast or lunch or better yet, invite them into your home around your table. I would say that's the number one need for spiritual growth because it was the number one way that Jesus actually ministered to people was in that context together. Uh, and what's so beautiful, the, all these depict the final wedding feast. And Revelation 19 speaks of the wedding supper. Jesus' ministry compares the reign of God to a wedding feast, one of the most joyful events in all of Jewish life. Uh, and the final end of the Christian life then is this, this wedding supper of the Lamb. And I love how it's described. It says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. These are the words that are, are really the opening to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And every feast in the Old Testament is anticipating this. The Lord's Supper is the continual rehearsal dinner that all who are invited to the wedding feast are inviting to the rehearsal dinner of the, the Lord's Supper as communally, commemoratively, uh, we anticipate this. And this, this means that as God's people, we ought to be those who who know what celebration is. We know how to take the ordinary gifts of God and follow those shafts of light back to him. One of my favorite short stories ever is the story by Isaac Dennison called Babette's Feast. There was a movie about Babette's Feast in 1987. It's a movie with English subtitles, but it's extraordinary. You all ought to go out and watch it. 
uh, get it on Netflix or find it on, on your Amazon account. Uh, and the, it tells this story. How many are you familiar with that? Babette's Feast. It tells the story of these two spinsters, sisters, who are overseeing a very strict, pious Christian sect in Denmark. Uh, and Babette comes as a refugee from the French Civil War. She kind of comes mysteriously into their lives. Uh, and she comes and she serves with them and is with them in this community. Uh, and it is a very kind of restrictive, repressive community. Uh, they only eat a diet of salted codfish and uh, some porridge made out of stale bread. And, and that's their fare. And she comes and she wins the lottery. And out of the largesse of this lottery, she makes a request to these sisters. She wants to put on a French dinner for them. Uh, and so they allow her to do this. And then quickly, and the movie depicts it so wonderfully, that all of these exotic foods start being delivered to the house. And the sisters get a little nervous that this is going to undermine their spirituality, which was almost entirely one of self-denial. Uh, and so they, they enact there to be a rule at this feast. And they say, for the 11 that were going to be invited, they say, you are not allowed to praise the food. That would be uh, getting into sensuality, and that is not what we're going to do. So, so the movie's so wonderful depicting them as they, they experience these delights of the palate. Uh, and they just cannot hardly repress it, but they're successful. They don't praise the food. But there's one guest there who came at the last minute unexpected, and he's a general, and nobody dared put the restriction on him. And he is just exulting in the food. He is uh, celebrating each morsel, each experience of it. And they're not allowed to do that. But what you see, and the movie's so great at this too, is you see them, while not celebrating the food, all of a sudden they start interacting with each other more warmly. And they start forgiving each other. And old resentments and grudges and grievances get brought out into the light of their communal celebration and are repaired. Uh, and so it, it ends on that note. And then the sisters sadly say, I guess you're going back to France since you, you won the lottery and the proceeds. And Babette reveals, she says, I have no money. I spent every last dime on this feast. And there's nothing left. And I love how it depicts for us, and there's a general speech at the end. This general says, we're often confronted with a dilemma between the pleasures of the flesh and the pleasures of the spirit. But if we understand them rightly, they are both, again, redeemed and from God. That's basically what he says. Uh, and, and we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're invited to a heaven where we will embrace and dance and, and be invited around. And the, the extent of the invite into that encompasses the globe. Um, in Luke 14, Jesus says this. He says, uh, speaking of the marriage banquet, and this is a common use of in his parable, he says, go out to the highways, hedges, and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. He tells us, don't invite your friends. Invite the outsiders. Don't invite people who see the world the same way you do. Invite someone who sees it different and enter into their world and embrace them. This is the, this is the heart of God. And what this means for us is not only should we live this way and, and increase the margins of our hearts as God has moved it. Our God is not a narrow God. He's not a narrow nationalistic God. He's, he's, he, his heart embraces and overflows for the whole planet. But we also should realize that includes us. We are the furthest hedges and highways. I don't think they could have ever imagined us uh, being brought in. And that's who we are. And we're, we're invited in. 
And in, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus describes eternity this way. He says, many will come from east and west. In other words, encircle the globe. And they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let this settle for once and all. We're going to not only know each other in heaven, we're going to know people we haven't known before, and we're going to know ourselves better than we ever knew ourselves. And we're going to be ushered into a joy by which we could never imagine how good this is. We certainly could never afford it, but we can't imagine it. And it says reclining at the table in the kingdom of heaven, and he uses this image of a banquet. And it's paid for. Jesus gave everything he had to bring us into admission into this. And I want to say this means that, that, that for us, if we apply this, one of your assignments today is go enjoy something good in creation and don't just enjoy it for itself, but trace the shaft of light all the way back to God and somehow say, isn't God good to give us this? Isn't it good that God didn't make everything taste like cardboard or unsweetened oatmeal? He could have and still nurtured us. But, but he not only made those taste, I mean, I'm in my backyard and I'm picking red raspberries and black raspberries and yellow raspberries. They're all incredibly in, delicious and different. But God also made corresponding taste buds in my mouth to be able to pick up the differences. And God made these colors so seen in the summertime, and he also gave me rods and cones in the back of my eyes so that I can see those colors. And he makes audible sounds, and he also enables my ears and the inner ear to be able to pick up the different timber and tones uh, of all of those sounds. How good is God to give us this? We ought to be people, and if you are a believer in Christ and people don't look at you and say, there's a person who loves life. If you're not a person, the people say, I may not get their faith. I may not understand the exclusive fixation they have on Jesus, but man, they're fun to party with. <laughs> to walk through a woods or, or a nature center with them, and man, they're just exalting it. To enjoy a fine meal, to, to go and hear the best of music, man, I want to be with them, I want to hang out with them. The, that's the calling card of Jesus. If that isn't true, if we don't have that zest for life, that is a category of becoming like Jesus. That ability to enjoy and have a zest for life. But I want to say this in, in, in closing, is this is just the, is the foretaste of joy that will be ours forever. And if you are a believer, here's what's true for you. If you love Jesus and know you're loved by him, then God wants us to know that joy is at the center of our life and our experience, not the circumference not an evanescence thing that comes and goes, but joy is the centerpiece of our life because we will do this and enjoy Christ for all eternity. There will be no times of deprivation. There will be no times of dealing with conflict. There will be no people who don't like us. There will be no things that we want to do but can't afford to do. God has pleasure for us beyond our mind-blowing uh, ability to conceive of this. And if you are a believer, yes, we live in a world fraught and sown in with all kinds of suffering. And as a believer, sometimes we will be called to actually get in the very center of that. But that can never define us. The center of us is joy, which gives us the strength to get into those hard places. And sometimes suffering will come into our life like an ambush, and it will rock us and reduce us, and we'll need other people to lift us up and carry us because the suffering is so overwhelming, we can't hardly walk through it. But when we're going through that, we know this suffering will not stand. And what will come is an immovable joy 
Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, those sufferings and difficulties and tensions in this life that are ever present are the closest that hell's flames will ever get to us. If you know Christ, this world's existence is the closest hell will ever come to us. And, and so if you're not a believer, please know, if, if you're saying, I'm, I'm not going to surrender my life to Jesus because I want to have more fun. That just is a non-sequitur, nonsense way of looking at what Jesus offers. Jesus is the one in his hands are every pleasure. Satan never created a pleasure. He can't do it. He can only warp the pleasures that God has sown into the planet. It's ridiculous to say, I'm not going to be a believer because I want to have more fun because there are pleasures forever and they exist. Psalm 16 says, only in God's right hand is found pleasure. Pleasure that you will never regret the morning after. That is where pleasure is to be found. So if you're a believer, the suffering of this world, that's the closest hell will be allowed to be felt by you. But if you're, if you're not yet a believer, I want to say this, these shafts of pleasure, which are all invitations to know this God who is filled with such splendor, this world and its fleeting pleasures. And if you're a non-believer, it's not that joy is the center of your life, but suffering is really the center of your life. If you're not a believer, suffering is coming and more and more suffering that will overwhelm us. I mean, all of us face the reality, but you have to face the reality without knowing Christ and an eternal hope that, that death really becomes the center. And I'm not being morbid. The reality is, in this life, either death will take us out prematurely and we'll feel like, oh, wow, I was taken really young, uh, or you'll live to a very old age and you'll see everybody else that you love taken out. I'm not, I'm not being morbid about this. This is, this is the way it goes. And if you don't have the hope of eternity and of Jesus Christ, then suffering is at the center. And the best you can do is kind of like a trapeze artist, look for some little shaft of light and happiness and grab onto it for a season. And then it's gone and try to grab onto the next and grab onto the next and grab onto the next with mounting sorrow coming again and again and again. If you are not a believer, sadly, this world is the closest you will ever get to heaven. And this is not heaven. <laughs> this is not the promised end. This is not the thing that God has prepared for us that staggers our imaginations that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and neither has it entered into the heart of man. But God has revealed to us, the verse goes on, God has revealed to us by his spirit what waits for us. And Jesus, his desire for each one on the planet from the highways and byways, from the east and the west is for this wedding banquet that he has paid the complete price for that he has spilled his blood on the way to Calvary and that he longs, he says, I long to eat this supper. I long to drink that cup. I, I long for the new heavens and new earth. And the delay is simply that more people on the planet would RSVP, their acceptance of the invite and their acknowledgement that the splendors we see sown into this fallen world are the splendors that God is going to bring to full flower and fruition for all eternity without cessation. That that's his the restlessness in the heart of God is until that experience rests upon all of those who are his family. He longs for that homecoming and feasting, taking the ordinary things, going back and tracing them back to the one who has given those ordinary pleasures is the means God has for us to do it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this vision. Thank you that for each one of us who know you, the best is yet to come. 
And thank you that we can plant ourselves in the midst of these joys, whatever sorrows we're experiencing, however real, Lord, we don't take suffering in an unserious way or an uncompassionate way, but Lord, you love us to call us to lift our eyes. And so we pray that we would be a people who have that zest for life and who also point others to the source of all pleasure. We ask this and that you would use this closing song, Lord, to invite us and to show us the freeness and wideness and wildness of the offer we have through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.